Happy Mid-December, OCD family community. I had to do a double take at the calendar for a second. Like, are we really already halfway through December? Holy moly. How is that even possible? As a parent, I definitely jive with that adage that the days are long, but the weeks are short. But, but, there's something about December, am I right? where the weeks are especially quick to pass, and it can feel a bit overwhelming at times. Well, good thing I can always look forward to Fridays, because they are an anchoring moment when I get to be with all of you. And I'm so glad that you could join us today, because we are talking about inference-based CBT. Again, that's inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy. Except this time, we're getting a taste for what treatment looks like within this evidence-based model. So buckle up, fam, because I found this episode to fly by, and you won't want to miss it. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The CD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Y'all, y'all, welcome back. Welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast and welcome, welcome to our newest listeners. This past week has been wild, wild in terms of growth and I can't thank you enough for it. OCD Family Podcast is now streaming in over 20 countries, spanning six different continents, and I really look forward to providing more cultural inclusion and a sense of belonging for all, yes, all of the OCD fam. Also, I want to say a a very special welcome to the ICBT side of the family. We are all one family, y'all. But ICBT family, hey, I see you guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Y'all have embraced this community like a big warm hug. And uh, I don't know about you, OCD family community, but uh, I mean, I love myself a warm hug or two. So thank you. I would just say, you know, in addition to being so glad that you're here joining us, if you're finding the content helpful, please consider leaving OCD Family Podcast a five-star review wherever you enjoy your podcast so we can continue to populate within all those techie algorithms and help more people know that they're not alone. Also back with us this week is our special guest, Mike Hetty, LCPC. And if y'all didn't hear last week's episode, let me, let's just say this, okay? I recommend pausing, pausing, because you're going to want to come back and hear this episode for sure. It's, it's good stuff. But pause here, go back, and catch up on the intro to ICBT from last week, because it's really, really important to understand the why of ICBT before we launch into the how. But in terms of today, we're talking about what treatment looks like, and I'll make this disclaimer. This is a broad overview. But I really appreciate the way Mike helped to truncate it down and help us get a better working understanding for this. 
You may remember that Mike is the co-owner and co-director of the Anxiety and Stress Institute in Maryland here in the States. But you can find out more information about Mike at www.ocdfamilypodcast.com, where I will have direct links to the Anxiety and Stress Institute, icbt.online, and more. So with that, family, let's welcome back Mike as we dive deeper into inference-based CBT so that we can get, and I'm super excited about this, a better understanding of treatment. Welcome back, Mike. I would imagine for families not having had treatment or if they're very, very like treatment resistant with doing exposures, just not really able to tolerate it. Inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy, ICBT, could be a really great option, as well as it could be a great starting option if you know what you're talking about. Well, and isn't that the key, right, is to be able to distill this stuff down so that we all get what we're talking about. And, you know, ERP, one of its advantages is that it makes sense, right? It's like if we just said, if you're afraid of the dark, how would you try to make yourself not afraid of the dark? And no one's like, and night light and turn the, you know, turn the light on or sleep with my parents. Like instinctively, we know from a very young age that we have to confront that fear. So I love ERP in, you know, it's seeming simplicity. Although if you try to understand some of the learning language behind it, right, you know, reinforcement schedules, all the stuff that sort of underpins the theory, that gets complicated Mm -hmm. too. So we're talking at that level. I don't think that they're wildly different, right? You can read some research into ERP talking about variable interval reinforcement schedules and that gets really dense, right? It gets Um, very heady. Which is it gets very heady, which is my last name. For sure. Last name. I'm sure you've never gotten that. I've never heard never. that. Never. I know. No- new. Novel. The only thing I have been saying for a while, as well as a lot of the the other people who are less new to this, is to try to come at this with like a blank slate if possible. It's not always the easiest thing to do, but it makes the most sense when I've learned it like with fresh eyes and then maybe try to do that dance of how to incorporate it into my style or my, my process. ERP is effective. ERP is widely researched and you know, it's, it's a solid model of treatment. Mm-hmm. It's just not the only model of treatment. And that's the big thing for me was that I argued with this left and right up and down because I thought we had the answer. I thought we had the right way of understanding this, the right way of thinking about this. And it turns out there's this other way and it's been around for almost 30 years that is different and different enough that I think is worth learning. This, this, I don't know if it's just that I've been doing ERP and I'm so zoomed in, but this just feels so radically different and I'm not opposed to different, but it's really hard to wrap my mind around. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I mean, this threw me for a loop the first time I heard about it and read it. Right. right. And I never con- considered that maybe there was something more that we could know or that we did know and that I just wasn't aware of it. And so I think it, it's super interesting and it's such a fun thing to learn. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to learn and I'm excited to have the availability of more than one way to solve a problem. Well, Mike, this has been very, very helpful. We're having a great conversation. So this brings us to how in the world, (laughs) how in the world do you do this? Because I would love it if it was just as simple, and I I realize simple, I kind of generous term, but 
it was just as simple as going into those narratives and going, oh, okay, I'll believe it differently. And so tell me more about what treatment looks like. I imagine folks come into treatment, they have to kind of wrap their mind around the psychoed, of course. But, you know, how do you do this? Right. What's well, a great question. And I think we're not going to be able to do it justice in a short time. So I'll try to be concise, but also include all the important pieces, which is that this is an experiential process, right? We're not providing the client with reality. We're not lecturing to them about these things. This is an experiential process. So <laughs> let's take the person who might have a hit and run OCD, Yeah, right? And it begins with, and this is just how I use this, which is, hey, you know, tell me about a recent event where you had, and again, most people coming into my office, they've already self-diagnosed or been diagnosed, but they had this event where they're like doing this thing that they think is OCD. Tell me about that. I want to hear that whole story, mm -hmm. right? And, and they're going to unpack that story. And the very first thing I'm going to help them come to realize is, so it seems to me like the problem begins when you doubted something. Let me explain what I mean. And I unpack the moment mm -hmm. for them. And I said, okay, you were driving down the road, you hit a pothole. That's pretty mundane. Thousands of people ran over potholes today. So that isn't the problem, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem is that you need to avoid potholes. The problem is, is that something happened right after that. What was that? What was it again? Oh, it was, well, what if I hit someone with my car? Right. That seems to be where this whole thing started. Would you agree with that? If that hadn't showed up, everything would have been fine. Right. Yeah, I think that that's true. Okay, great. So what we can say is like all the stuff that happened after, all the complicated feelings and compulsions that went on for hours, it all started here, right? Yes, it started there. Good. So that's the first thing. We It starts with the doubt. Again, the inference of doubt. I'm not using the word inference of doubt with my clients. Right. Right. You're I'm just saying, finding okay, the, the moment where the dominoes started to fall. Right. That's where the, that what if right there, that, that could be, that might be, that maybe, that's where it became a problem. And then I'm going to help them realize, okay, what about that what if was so captivating to you? Like, why'd you give a crap about that what if and not like thousands of other what ifs you could have had? And they'll tell you their reasons. Mm -hmm. But they might need a little bit of prompting, but they'll be like, well, because of this. And they'll go, because it's, well, it's possible. And because it was scary. And because I had a friend once, yeah. I had a friend once who hit someone mm -hmm. or because, and that, you know, and, and they could come up with all these justifications mm -hmm. that are their reasons, right. For buying into this doubt. Great. I need to know that there's a great deal of empathy and understanding why someone trusted this story. Yeah. Right. Most, most people who've gone through more traditional treatments for this probably haven't been asked that question. Mm -hmm. Right. Or at least it hadn't been elaborated on. So I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to help them come to understand that it wasn't just the fact that it's possible and that your friend had this history and that you saw the news story about hit and run and, and, and that you felt scared it, by itself. That wasn't the reason you got so captivated. And then I explain that it was because a story, a narrative process created this, this thing that that narrative is what seduced you, captivated you, absorbed you. Absorbed. Mm -hmm. And how, and how epically important the narrative process is, right? Mm -hmm. And it happens to be that your story, right, has all of these reasons attached to it, all of these things. And that's why it was so captivating. And I might explain to them that we can create captivating stories right here, right now. Mm -hmm. I can help you 
create a story. Hey, we're going to have a story that starts with, you know, I saw the sky turning gray, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and everything was fine. Tell me a story. Connecting those two things, mm-hmm. right? I saw a guy on the street with a gun and everything was fine. Tell mm-hmm. me that story. Mm-hmm. And we can tell that story. So we're good at conjuring up narratives, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And we can do it with a lot of detail. So we're going to explain that process. And then we're going to help them understand that, that their experience is a story, that the what if is sort of the, the beginning of this whole transported into this place, right. right? And then what if we told a slightly different story about that example? What if we told a different story that started with, I drove over a bump and it turned out everything was just fine. Can you tell me that story? Mm-hmm. Right? Now, this isn't to challenge or dispute the other story. It's just simply to say, could there be another story? There could be a dozen other stories. How about this one? Now, does that challenge the the significance of this first story a little bit? Yeah, I think it does a little bit. Great. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to talk about how there are two kinds of doubting that's true for everybody. And this is a really useful piece of the of the experience here. And so I'm going to take a small tangent before we get back on what does treatment look like? Is that all right? Yeah, small please. T- so this whole, this whole part is understanding the difference between obsessional doubting, the inference of doubt, the faulty inference of doubt and normal doubting or normal uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Right? So I use the following example to highlight this. So other people may have heard this before, but let's say that I went to my doctor for a routine annual exam. And as my doctor sort of looking me over, discovered that there was a lump on my neck that shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. And my doctor goes, oh, Mike, give me your hand. I want you to feel this. And rubs it on my neck. And she goes, you feel that bump there? I said, yeah. She's like, it's not supposed to be there. I think in order for us to sort of do our due diligence, aside from the blood tests we're going to order, I think we should probably do a biopsy just to be safe. Mm-hmm. Now, based on your age and your history, I don't think it's, I think it's probably nothing to worry about, but let's just be clear. I'm going to order a biopsy. And so she puts an order for a biopsy and I go to the place, the biopsy tech feels the lump too. Yeah. Right. And they say, is this the right lump? I say, yeah, it's the right lump. And then they take a specimen from it. Right. And then they send that specimen off to some magical place where they, where where some human evaluates it. And in this time that I'm waiting, that 10 or so days where I'm waiting for the results, I, as well as every other person on the planet, it's going to have the same doubt. Mm-hmm. Could this be cancerous? Right. What if this is cancerous? We call this normal doubt or normal uncertainty. The reason it's normal uncertainty is because I don't know. Right. I can't know until I get more information, which I will get, and then this will resolve. I will either have cancer or not. Right. Right. But the reason for this doubt arising, the way it showed up was normal, was reasonable. Why? Because what came first was the lump detected by a medical professional that I also felt that wasn't supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. The lump showed up first. My perception and some other person's perception detected a real thing, and then I doubted what it, what it could mean. That's normal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If I see smoke in my house, I might think there's a fire. I could be wrong. I hope there's plenty of reasons. There's plenty of reasons for smoke in a house, right? 
one of them is fire. It's completely reasonable to go, I don't know if it's a fire, but it might be. Right. Yeah. You saw smoke. You should infer fire, even if you're wrong. This is normal uncertainty. This is an OCD. Mm-hmm. This is not what starts OCD. Mm-hmm. The next part is what we get into does. I got my results, right? And and my doctor's office has something called my chart. So I go in and I look, oh, results from your biopsy. Go click on it because even though they told me not to do it, I'm going to read it anyway, uh-huh. right? And it has my name and my date of birth and it has the place that took the lab results. It's like the, the address of the place and the technician who took it, sample evaluated, and it says benign, mm-hmm. right? And instead of jumping for joy and feeling a weight lifted off my shoulder, I go, but what if they switch the labs? Mm-hmm. You know, there was a situation where my father's medication for his heart was, was filled incorrectly at the pharmacy and they gave him Viagra. <laughs> I know humans can make human errors sure. and the people who do these tests are human so they can make a human error. It's possible. There was this 2020 special a couple of years ago that investigated all the human errors in the medical profession. And people get sued all the time for like taking the wrong leg off the person. I mean, if you can take the wrong leg off, you can get a lab result wrong. Mm-hmm. And I could keep going. But right. now this is obsessional doubt. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's obsessional doubt is because the way it came about was completely different than the other example. There was absolutely no perceptual information in the relevant present moment that made me think the labs could have been switched. Nothing. Right. There wasn't even good common sense. If I had brought that story to, to, to 20 other people, they'd be all like, what would make you think they switched the labs? Right. It doesn't make any sense. Right. Right. So the common sense isn't there. The, the perceptual relevant five senses information isn't there, but the story is. Ah, the story came first. And then I tried to justify it desperately yeah. with examples that are, completely irrelevant to this moment, completely irrelevant to me. They're just there for me to grab and throw in here as desperate attempts to prop up a story that I feel I should pay attention to. And the reason I feel I should pay attention to it is because I'm inferentially confused, because I am predisposed to being the kind of person who could be unlucky, to be the kind of person who could feel as though he's negligent. And if I don't triple check this report and it turns out it really wasn't mine, then I feel responsible. Yeah. Right. So you get what I'm saying is, is yeah. that's, and that's a whole part of the treatment process is helping the client understand those two different experiences and how one is normal and not related to OCD. And one is obsessional is absolutely related to OCD. Yeah. The rest of the treatment process is about trying to get the person to not only understand that how they reasoned themselves into this OCD story was problematic and all the different ways it, it captured their attention. We're now going to pivot and we're going to help them begin trusting themselves and their senses again. Mm-hmm. And so the latter part of treatment is all about reality sensing okay. and using your senses normally, not with extra effort, not avoidantly. Normally, how do you use your senses in non-OCD moments? Pretty effortless, pretty trusting. Good. Let's use that here, right? Mm -hmm. And by the time we've gotten here, it's not like an effortful thing. 
to behave normally in obsessional circumstances because you no longer believe the con artist's trick, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a lot of other, you know, interventions that they use. One is called the alternative story, mm-hmm. which is probably worth a little bit of airtime, which is if I have spent years trusting an obsessional storied process, mm-hmm. I have flexed that muscle like crazy, mm-hmm. right? I am Olympic level good at telling an obsessional story, but I am not Olympic level good at telling a reality-based story in this area. So I need to flex that muscle. What's a reality-based narrative about this obsessional situation look like and sound like? How is that constructed? I could tell a story about how I was driving down the road and I hit a bump, but in this example, I use my five senses and my common sense to finish the story. And the story ends the way the story ended in the first place, which was everything was fine. Right. Right. Not because I checked, not because I had a panic attack, not because I was lucky, but because I had no reason to doubt that the pothole was actually a person in the first place. And so we help them realize through this alternative story, a reinvestment in their five senses and common sense reality. Right? right, where they had previously distrusted. Now let's let's work on not distrusting it. Let's work on actually trusting it again, and so get good at telling this reality-based story because they're so not good at that. Right, right. So in the process of trusting the five senses and giving yourself kind of factual evidence versus hearsay that OCD wants you to believe, I think what can get tricky is sometimes within ERP, providing that kind of information to yourself is seen as a compulsion. It's mental reviewing and now I'm rationalizing. So for example, let's say I get on an airplane and I'm afraid it's going to crash, right? And I remind myself, but you know what? Like flying in an airplane is safer than driving in a car. And I drive in a car all the time and I don't worry about that. And I know that it's rare and blah, blah, blah. In ERP, That would be part of the compulsion strategy of going in and trying to reassure yourself like that doesn't happen very often, even though you're still feeling that heightened distress. Here in ICBT, it seems like going back and leaning in and going, I have no evidence that this is going to crash. There's no like wires or funny smoke coming out of the things. And I, I already know that airplane travel is safe. I've flown many times. I've never crashed. Like, where's the line between just providing and trusting in your senses, which I think sometimes people are reasoning that they're trying to do, and going into that compulsion zone? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so two things, which is when, we, when we're talking about trusting our senses and, and inferential confusion, we have to make sure that we're still in the OCD territory and not a phobia territory. So fear of flying could be an OCD or it could be a phobia, right? So we want to be careful when we're using examples because someone could go, oh, well, you you know, a plane could crash. Well, yeah, it it could crash, right? And and I could get hit by a comet in five minutes too. It's all possible, right? But with OCD, the doubt itself is not just irrelevant to the present moment. It's actually false, Mm -hmm. right? It's false because of how it came about, how it was constructed. So When we talk about, say, like using an alternative story or even just telling someone, what are your senses telling you? From an ERP standpoint, depending on how you use ERP and frame it, someone could go, oh, that's a, that's a compulsion Mm -hmm. because they presume 
that its function is to alleviate distress or escape distress. Now, if someone's doing a thing to escape distress, then yeah, I would argue it's probably compulsive, especially if it's repetitive. But if someone's doing something to just sort of acknowledge reality and then go, well, I'm going to trust reality, and then they're done, that's not compulsive. That's just reorienting towards what's real. Right. So the, we don't want to, to tell people with OCD, not only can you not know what's real, you should try not to. On the altar of embracing some version of ERP. No, the client knows what's real because we established at the beginning of the podcast, they don't have deficits in perception. Their eyes work just as well as my eyes work. Right. They just distrust them here. So what I'm helping them do is realize they distrusted them here and to not, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so that's connecting to what's real. So how it functions is what matters. I help someone do an alternative story. It's functioning to help them really flex that muscle of connecting to what's real. But if they start using it like it's a prayer, right? Right? Like a chant over and over and over again. The, you know, I didn't hit that person with my car. I didn't hit that person with my car. I didn't hit that person with my car. I did. That's a compulsion, right? That because reality again doesn't require you to say something a thousand times for it to be true. Reality hits you between the eyes. I didn't see a person. Done. Right? right? That was a bump, not me hitting a 130-pound person at 40 miles an hour. Right. right. I know that. Right. You don't, you don't have to have hit someone to, to know that. You know the difference between a bump and hitting something that's a living 140-pound creature at 30 miles an hour. You know the difference instinctually. So when I come back to this is anytime we're talking about a compulsion, we have to understand its function for the client. So a compulsion isn't established because I, the therapist, think it's a compulsion. A compulsion is established because it's how it's serving the client. And if it's serving the client to dig them deeper into their OCD, to try to escape distress, then that's problematic. And that's true of any approach. I've seen ERP itself become compulsive. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. So the alternative story or any other reality sensing aspect of the ICBT model has the risk of becoming compulsive, just sure. like any treatment does. And that's why there's a great effort taken on the therapist side to help make sure that you're using this in the way it's intended to, which is simply reconnecting to what your senses and your perception are telling you in this present moment and not distrusting it for reasons that are erroneous or false or imagined. So in the airplane example, and let's, you know, assume for the purposes of, of this kind of conversation that it is OCD-based and not phobia. Through the work of ICBT, that same person who may be starting to react to distress or whatnot can go, actually, I can see the area I'm in is safe. I don't see anything alarming. And I think my brain got caught in that other story. My brain got caught in the other story and I, st I, I started to give in to a little bit. I was feeling it, but I can see clearly presently that there's nothing, there's no smoke, there's whatever. Like it's that I've gotten into obsessional doubt. Is that ultimately the goal that the person can snap out of it in that moment and realize I'm getting into the narrative versus 
the reality of what my situation is? Yes, I think that that's a good way of framing that, which is that, you know, we're not trying to get the client to just forever and always have to play whack-a-mole with, you know, inferences of doubt, right? The goal at some point is, is a much deeper learning that I am not actually the kind of person who is susceptible to unlucky circumstances, that I am not actually the kind of person who needs to keep an eye out for becoming a negligent person. So I would say the frequency of those inferential errors consistently drops as treatment goes on. And we see recovery not being about tolerating those doubts showing up, but but those doubts not showing up much more at all. That And then when they do show up, that they're easily dismissed because I know the magician's trick. Right. right? You you tried to make me think you made a, a rabbit disappear. I've seen that show before. I know how you do that, right? So it's not as if we have to sort of establish that obsessions are this constant. So other models kind of see it that way, that at least intrusive thoughts are a constant that you must make room for. In an ICBT model, no, you may have to make room for intrusive thoughts, but that's irrelevant to OCD. That, that the inference of doubt that was constructed in this moment can be resolved to the degree that it shows up a whole lot less or not at all. And I don't want to make it, I'm not using words like cure. I'm not using, because there's always the possibility that you get tricked by an inference of doubt, right? Sure. But I don't want people hearing this to go, oh, you're just constantly evaluating whether something's obsessional or not. No, at some point, the person is savvy enough to go with this particular thing. That's my, <laughs> that's my vulnerability. So that's where yeah. I get caught. Yeah. I mean, I think that is really useful. And I think prior to this conversation, my inference, if you will, <laughs> was that there was a lot of rumination going on in terms of how ICBT was being practiced. And that was definitely corrected. And I understand that a lot better now. And it's not that you can't get caught in that. But again, if we were looking at, and if people knew that at face value and came in as a new client and realized, I can either learn to get me to the distress when it comes, or I can just not even really, I can really cut down on the amount of doubting thoughts I'm having and inferential confusion. I think a lot of people would be like, well, that sounds like a better deal in, in a lot of circumstances. But for different reasons, it can click, both treatments can click for different reasons. So it is, it's very helpful to know that there's more than one way to ride the horse, I guess, and, you know, get through life in this. What about with situations where the intrusive thought, as we would say in the ERP world or the doubt, is impulsive in nature. So what if I impulsively stab somebody? What if I impulsively, what if I'm driving on the highway and there are cars around or maybe there's only one car and I, and I impulsively like lose control of the car or, you know, swerve right into them? Because it's one thing to be able to scan your environment, but in that, in that situation, you could also scan your environment and go, well, I'm not. <laughs> driving right. normally. Well, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's the point, right? Is that if we focus on framing, framing this up from an ICBT standpoint, where is the doubt? Where was that initial obsessional doubt that got the person to leave reality and enter into this story? It was the point by which they were driving prompt mm -hmm. trigger mm -hmm. normal. Mm -hmm. They said, I could suddenly jerk the wheel left and cause a car crash. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, is there anything in this present moment that makes you think 
that you're going to do that, right? Do you have a history of yanking your car into the left or to the right and causing car accidents? If you do, then you, by all means, you shouldn't do that. You should, you should try to not do that. Take the bus. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So we look at this. What does your common sense tell you? What does your relevant five senses information tell you? And is there any reason to distrust that right now? So just because you could do something is irrelevant. I could do a lot of things I'm not currently thinking of, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so it's irrelevant until we have a good reason to pay attention to it. And that's where that trickster begins. It makes you think you should pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. But really it was just, hey, I could do this. Yeah, I could also go get coffee. <laughs> I could also you know, do a bunch of other things. None of that is relevant, mm -hmm. right? As my father used to say, uh, as a colloquialism was, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Excellent. Which is his way of saying, that's a non sequitur. Mm -hmm. That's an irrelevancy. Why are we talking about that? So that's how we would look at that and go, the doubt here is either warranted and I should not be driving anymore mm -hmm. or it's obsessional and I have absolutely no reason to think it's worth my attention. Now, getting to that place through the experiential work, through the cognitive work, that takes some time. Yeah. Right. Because those stories are incredibly well defended, incredibly well practiced. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and people in terms of trusting their senses. So, I mean, we've talked a little bit about this uh, indirectly, but the physiological cues that happen within your body, you know, if you have a harm OCD subtype as well as a health OCD subtype, and maybe you have found through the mystery, uh, an obsessional kind of journey of trying to figure out what's wrong with me, that you might have a cluster of, of diagnoses where you would go, okay, well, if I'm trusting my five senses, I feel something physiologically. So yeah, that I am dangerous, right? Like they might come to that conclusion based on what we may know as anxiety or adrenaline or cortisol. They might be going, oh, but I'm checking in my five senses and it's true. So I might like maybe I will pass out because I'm having a health moment and then I would cause a car accident when you can see how it gets complicated. So in ICBT, you would say, Okay, at, what's, at what point am I feeling things in my body and have things gone wrong that I'm not trusting it? Or how would that? Well, sure. So again, I, we come back to sort of there's health anxiety and then there's health OCD. And right. So the, right. But so if we're dealing with someone who has high levels of inferential confusion, then they're obsessionally doubting something they ought not be doubting. Now, oftentimes we use physiological sensations, you know, uh, visceral internal sensations as, as evidence of a disease or disorder, mm -hmm. but a visceral sensation and a physical sensation are just that they're just physical sensations. They're just visceral sensations. The same thing could be said of how you talk to someone about having a panic attack. These are just physical sensations brought on by some other thing. You're making a leap and calling it a disease or a disorder or a health issue, mm -hmm. right? So we don't use the visceral and the physiologic as equitable or as the same as perception. Okay. Right. Because the problem is, is that if I see my physical sensation just as a physical sensation, my heart's racing versus I'm having a heart attack, right? Mm -hmm. That would be an important distinction. Yeah. But just because someone has a groinal response, right? 
Yeah. And they use that as evidence that, well, I got this while watching a bunch of, you know, 10 year olds playing soccer. I must be a pedophile. Right. No, that physical sensation, that visceral response has nothing to do with that in this context, because we're talking about OCD here. Yeah. Right. So you have to explain that process to someone. You have to explain how a visceral or a physiological sensation occurs, right? But that the OCD is using it out of context. The OCD is grabbing a hold of it and going, this must mean this. No, all it means is what it means. You had a reaction, but you can't then suddenly jump to the conclusion that it means this highly specific story is true. Uh That's what OCD makes you think. It makes you think, oh, well, look, I felt a headache and my heart palpitating. That must mean, and you can fill in your, your health condition from here. Now, it could mean that, but it's also by itself irrelevant, mm-hmm. right? So the time to know that you have an illness is when it's demonstrably true that you have an illness, mm-hmm. right? How do any of us who don't have OCD decide to go to the doctor, right? We trust our common sense and we trust our five senses. That's all we're asking people with OCD to do. And we find out where they're distrusting those things or overusing those things and then try to let it come back into the normal realm. So I said, how do any of us figure stuff out? Well, we don't do it obsessionally. Right. I'm thinking about, and I know, you know, we talked a little bit back and forth before recording today, and I know you don't necessarily work with children, but I know sometimes young children are coming in and they may be very concrete. And so thinking about some of this ICBT stuff, which is even hard for me as an older adult to kind of go and chew on, like in terms of at what age would ICBT be something we could work with folks on? Would it be, you know, in their teenage years or do we need to wait till their brain develops a little more in terms of their abstract thinking? Well, let's, you know, I'll speak on two levels to that. And my, my, I'll preface this with, I don't work with kids, meaning I don't work with any under 16 and I'm not, I'm not a sort of expert in that area, but my current understanding of the published research is that it's working with 18 and up, Mm -hmm. right? So there's the data for that. There are people, and this would be sort of anecdotal data, case study kind of data, not published case studies to my knowledge yet that are applying this to kids and they're applying it to, to kiddos, right? Six-year-olds, seven-year-olds. I think, and I'm happy to be completely corrected, <laughs> that if a child can discern imagination from reality, they know when they're making stuff up. Mm-hmm. If they can do that, then they can do ICBT because the goal here is really helping the kid understand that they got lost inside of a scary story, like one of the scary movies you watched, you got, you got pulled into that and here's how that happened. And can you realize that that's how that happened? And then can you discern the difference between what reality is telling me through the normal ways we all detect reality, our perceptions yeah, and trusting that instead of trusting the story that was created. I think if a kid can do that, then they can use ICBT. I don't have the language for that. Right. right. There are, there are people in the field who are doing wonderful work with kids. They have the language for it. They have the examples for it. I don't not hear right now. Yeah, that's fine. 
But what you're speaking to is really more or less clinicians being able to work on some of those reasoning strategies in the here and now that in very isolated areas have gone into that obsessional, faulty inference. And so, yeah, I mean, even if you're not abstract, you can learn concrete concepts and go, okay, oh yeah, that makes sense. Got it. And sometimes better than adults. And it's kind of like, you know, clicking some Legos together. We might struggle with it at first, but once we get the basic concept, we don't need to be exposed to every Lego and have that little tutorial through it all before we know how to put those Legos together. So realizing that we were just using different rules for the Legos over here and we don't need to. They're all Legos. Again, I'm getting some nods, so we'll go with that analogy. Yeah, I like the Lego analogy. Because for some of the OCD family community here, where there's been some treatment resistance, or especially around exposures, people may engage in something more like space, a program where, you know, you are reducing family accommodation and providing the environment for ERP, whether your loved one welcomes that in or not, and then doing some psychoeducation and all of that good stuff too. But here would be another option. If somebody is interested in learning more about ICBT in terms of is there a provider that might be near me or in my state that I could get treatment and outside, you said in Canada and Europe, for example, outside of the U.S. too, it's accessible as well. How could people go about finding out more about ICBT for treatment? Sure. So I'd say the first stop for anyone, clinician or consumer, is the website icbt.online. Okay. I'll say that again, icbt.online. And there's a, a wealth of resources, right? From instructional videos to infographics to a bunch of other short essays about ICBT. And it's a very helpful place to kickstart the conversation. There's even a document that's consistently updated every couple of months about who provides ICBT in an area, right? As we know, Mm -hmm. ICBT being the somewhat newer kid on the block, mm -hmm. especially in the U.S., there is not a lot of clinicians. There's more and more every day. Yeah. But if you were to say, you know, I'm going to throw a rock into a crowd of OCD therapists, how many of them use ERP versus ICBT? The vast majority are going to be using ERP. And we hope to sort of create people who can practice both or ICBT more. So the next year or two, we're going to see a lot of growth in that area. But yeah, that's the website's the first place to go. And I believe that Fred Ardema is um, in the process of wrapping up a self-help book. Oh. So I think probably, I'm hoping sometime in 2023, fingers crossed, because I'm going to read it too. Hopefully that'll be out sometime, because that can distill some of the more complex researchy language into something a little bit more palatable for the average person. And that can be that can be a game changer for the general population as well. Yeah. And, you know, it, it may still be dense and that happens with ERP, too. I happen to know from a client that first tried to get treatment through NoCD that they were sending out copies of Dr. Jonathan Grayson's Freedom from OCD. Now, if you've read that and it may it's it can be very, very helpful, but it's very, very dense. So if you're if you're coming into OCD treatment hot, like I am distressed to the max, trying to wrap your mind around that's pretty hard. And that can happen certainly within like self-help books. But 
it sounds like that will at least break down or distill, as you said, some of the clinical jargon to help us process and chew at these different concepts. But if people listening aren't able to necessarily access an ICBT therapist, might they find, are there online resources that are talking about ICBT? And certainly, especially at a therapist, at a clinical level, is, are there resources, even like videos, where people might be able to find that on YouTube? They're being developed. Certainly for clinicians, there's plenty of videos on the website. There are instructional videos of clinicians who have unpacked all 12 modules of ICBT in instructional videos. It's not a replacement for therapy. It's not therapy itself. It is meant for clinicians trying to learn ICBT. There's people who are creating training, online training options, on-demand training options. It's all sort of in the works. I think the next year you're going to see an explosion of opportunities. As far as the IOCDF and the ADAA, I think there are strong hopes yeah. that, that we can broker some kind of yeah. an acceptance and understanding. And, you know, the, the data is there. The intrigue is there. The safety and efficacy of the treatment is there. So my hope is, is within a very short time, we will see both advocating for and endorsing in their own way, this other perspective, because again, we all should go where the data goes. And if the data says this helps and it's good data, we'll see why it shouldn't be there. Yeah. So that's a really good point. And you know, as whether you're doing ERP or ICBT, it's always helpful we live in the what ifs of what if this happened, what if it will happen. And so orienting yourself to the here and now, staying in the present is a really kind of key factor in both of those treatment models. And so if you don't have anyone around you treating ICBT, but you're like, it jives with me, maybe even starting to think about for yourself. And again, that's not treatment, but also if you're in treatment, think about it with your therapist and say, Okay, what is the story, though, that I'm telling myself and what is, you know, objectively my body or these five senses able to tell me about this very same scenario? And thinking about that and unpacking that with your therapist, even if they are ERP, if it's a good therapist, they're not going to be like, shut up, we're going back to exposures, you're avoiding. Well, and to, absolutely, and to put this out there for other therapists who are listening, there's a lot of us who've learned ICBT who've been around and who know the ERP world. I speak both languages fluently. I love both treatments. I'm happy to do case consultations. There's a lot of us happy to do case consultations. And if people are just sort of going, I just, I'm trying to help my client understand it from this angle, help me walk through it. We can help you walk through it. And this is sort of the grassroots movements that's going on, at least in the U.S., to try to get more people or clinicians trained and, and curious so that we can provide consultations to those who don't have the time to do deep dive trainings, but still want to sort of dip their feet into the ICBT world. And, and so we're, we're available and you can reach us through the website, icbt.online. Wonderful. So I'll link that on ocdfamilypodcast.com and I'm going to link more information to your practice as well, if that's okay with you. Sure. Mike, and what a treat to have you here and helping us understand this. And I, I, I can say confidently here at OCD Family Podcast, we are going to embrace all hope available, especially when we can say it's evidence-based and we can see outcomes. 
it is available and it, it's a hope bringer. And so absolutely, we are a friend to both <laughs> ERP and ICBT. And I look forward to learning more about this and understanding it more as well. So thank you so much for your time today, Mike. Really, really appreciate all of your wisdom and helping us kind of flesh out the minutia that is really important because it, it may seem very easy to use different words synonymously, but they have a very different meaning and function. So I guess if our takeaway today is anything, and when it comes to OCD, this is just helpful anyway, look at what is the function? What is the function? And I think that's really, really helpful. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm happy to do this again in the future if we want to do a deeper dive into more specifics. Yeah, perfect. Well, I, I can say I'm ready to do a deep dive, but I got marinate on this one. So. so we will come back and hopefully by the time we can get back together, there will be more of those resources available. And I will always keep you up to date, OCD family community. Thank you for that. As we close up on this conversation today, ICBT is not about the intrusions. It's still a bit of a mind bend for me. And so I'm still wrapping my mind around it. And that's okay. That's an organic piece of the process. And I'm, I'm learning along with all of you in terms of trying to understand this. This is a very different approach to treating OCD. And different doesn't mean it's wrong. Different doesn't mean ERP is wrong. It means just what it is. It's different. And it's something that we, I think, as a society and a culture have been working on trying to learn and how to understand and how to connect with one another when we think differently about things. So, you know, some of the questions populating in my mind are for clinicians, for example, that speak both ERP and ICBT, how do you know where to start? And I think, you know, this is, we kind of referenced this earlier in the podcast, like as much as you can try to come at it with a blank slate, not saying, how can I fit ICBT into my current ERP treatment, whether you're the client or the family member that is supporting the OCD treatment or the clinician, try to come at it with a blank slate, really understand it first. And then we can start developing that skill of being fluent in speaking both languages. But I love the idea that there is more than one way to address this. And it's completely different. It really is. And, you know, I'm going to have to continue to digest this bit by bit, and I might have to go back and re-listen, and I'm going to need to dig into some of those other materials, like a website, to approach the common enemy here of OCD. We have these two sides of the coin, but they're still the same coin. They have value. They have importance. They still function to address OCD. We can continue learning. We can lean into the community that's been acquainted with this already for some time and learn together because we're better together. And so in my approach to learning more about ICBT, I'm going to start taking on some of this functional learning language. So inferences of doubt, inferential confusion, very key. Doubt or doubting the verb, the verb 
not the feeling, the verb. Vulnerable self-themes, that is important. These crossover points, that is important. But again, we don't have to use that kind of explicit language. For clinicians, it's important for the clinicians to understand that that is what we're working with. But for you, for me, to be able to function and go, okay, I get it when it, when it crossed this point from being like normal reasoning, my status quo, to really obsessional doubting. I think that's important for us to look at. And so you'll hear me start to weave in different, different ideas here. And you know, it's going to be tricky. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, with my intrusive thought segment, my little tongue-in-cheek application segment. I was like, should I change that? Is that not inclusive of ICBT? Certainly when I started this podcast and started that segment, I didn't even realize that there was a whole nother way of thinking about OCD that did not have to do with intrusive thoughts. But I'm going to be true to myself. And to me, the reality is I do speak that language. I speak the language of intrusive thoughts. It doesn't mean I can't speak the language of inference of doubts. It means different things. And so maybe what that means is that I'll have to caveat from time to time. I say intrusive thoughts or I'm going to be folding in just more of this ICBT language, just like we would practice when we're learning a new language, right? Hola, bonjour. Ciao. I might practice playing it. And if I get really off, then somebody will go, actually, you say it like this. Or the right application would be this. But I found whenever I've learned other languages, and I'm not going to even act like I'm even close to proficient, really, in languages outside of English, but I can speak enough to function (laughs) in a bit of a conversation. I find people, especially people that speak that other language, really, really appreciate it. They appreciate the effort at learning and knowing something that is foreign to you and trying. And so if anything else, this can let the ICBT community know that, hey, this community, the OCD family community, we're here and we're trying to understand. So no, I'm not going to change intrusive thoughts segment. I'm not going to go overcorrect this way because I'm not going to worry about all that. I'm just going to do what I can do to be fluent in both languages. And the reality is if we're thinking of these treatment models as languages, I speak ERP much better then I speak ICBT. But I only get better at knowing ICBT if I practice it, if I continue to study it, if I continue to learn and lean into the amazing people and have conversations with people that do speak it and speak it well, like Mike, like these other consultants that were listed on the ICBT website, going to trainings, watching videos, having conversations listening to podcasts. And so that's what I'm going to try and do. Also, I just want to note Hanukkah for those who celebrate is starting this Sunday on the 18th. So just wanted to wish you all a safe and wonderful start to your holiday for those practicing Hanukkah. We will be back next week during Hanukkah and right before Christmas. So we are still going to be up and at them and ending our year and starting our new year with an amazing collection of our OCD and OCD-related warriors and some of their stories. 
So make sure you come back next week so that we can keep learning how to be the best support we can for our loved ones. Until then, fam, happy Hanukkah. See you next week. Because from my vantage point, there's more hope on the horizon. And that is some really, really great news. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like ICBT, bringing more hope for me. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.